Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and uh, this morning, as we pick up where we left off uh, last week, uh, I want to read again our text from last week. We'll begin in verse 1, and then we'll read down through verse 8, but our, our text for this morning that we'll focus on is, is verses 6 to 8, and what Peter is, is doing by quoting these several verses of Scripture in order to support his point about Christ and his rejection and exaltation and and even the people of God being honored as they are united uh, to Christ, to his God's sovereignty over all of these things. Our our focus will be on on verses 6 to 8, but again, as I said, I want to begin by reading um, from verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, long ago when your people were in the wilderness awaiting to come into the land of Canaan and to receive it as their promised inheritance, they sang a song praising you. Moses led them in this song that would both be a a song that exalted you and a song of warning to the people of the day who were of a stubborn and hard heart. And in that song, they praised you for being the rock whose work is perfect and whom all his ways are just. And many generations later, when your people were trembling in fear over the prospect that their nation would be destroyed by a foreign pagan nation. You told them not to fear, that they are to trust in You, the Lord, but that You would also be a rock, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And later, you... You spoke prophetically through your servant David. And you spoke of your king, the anointed Christ, as being the one who would be victorious over his enemies. 
And that He would be a stone that was rejected, but that who had become the cornerstone. All throughout the prophets, you had promised that you were the rock, and that a rock was coming. And now in the person of Christ, Peter teaches us ever so clearly that that rock in Jesus Christ has indeed become the cornerstone. And this has all happened according to your sovereign will. You have achieved your purposes even despite the sin and the wickedness of men. And so Lord, it encourages us to be a people all the more who trust in You. Because whether good or bad, You are sovereign over all things and are carrying out Your good purposes on the earth. And so Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we especially meditate on this truth of Your sovereignty. Lord, that You would strengthen our weak knees and strengthen our faith to trust in You and to live all the more boldly. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. One of the great tragedies that I often see is when Christians are unwilling to receive and believe and accept the whole counsel of God, particularly on those doctrines that are deemed to be controversial. You could think, for example, of the doctrine of election. That God, in His sovereign will, determines who He will save. He determines who He will have mercy on. And He determines who He will not give mercy to. Many Christians, when they hear something like this, they they are appalled at such a doctrine, such an idea they cannot fathom that God would ever choose to save some and choose not to save others. It doesn't square with their understanding of God. They've heard for their entire lives almost that God loves everyone equally. That He loves Pharaoh as much as He loved Moses. That He loved the people of Israel as much as and in the same way as He loved the Canaanites whom He commanded Israel to go and destroy. Therefore, it it must be the case that God has done all that He can do to save everyone in an equal manner. The only reason that this has not happened, the only reason that all men have not been saved is because man in his free will chooses either to reject God or to receive God. Because of man and and his own will. God has gone as far as he can. God has done as much as he can. He has provided a, a way for salvation. He's made atonement for everyone's sins. He's he's made this available to everyone. Now it is up to man to respond properly. It is up to man to receive this gift. And if he doesn't receive it, well, Jesus did all that he could. He gave it his best. He gave his life. He shed his blood. But it just wasn't quite enough to overcome that hardness of will of man. Because of this particular understanding of how salvation works, Christians often reject the doctrine of election and oftentimes with with much disdain and hatred for it. 
as I said in the beginning, I consider this particularly a tragedy. And not because from an intellectual perspective, I just wish that everyone could all believe the same things and agree together. I call it a tragedy because a doctrine like the doctrine of election is virtually always brought to the forefront in Scripture to be a kind of comfort for the people of God, to assure them of the great love that God has for them and that can never be shaken because it is rooted in eternity and is not determined by whatever good or bad they have or have not done, but it is determined by the will of God to freely bestow His affections on the most undeserving people. It's rooted in the very character of God in eternity. It is a doctrine that is to be an anchor for the soul, especially in the midst of great suffering. And even when doubts may arise as to where we stand with God, perhaps because of these sufferings. As even the Apostle Paul makes clear at the end of Romans chapter 8, when he asks that question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then he goes on further and says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And he, he brings up the Sovereignty of God, particularly in election, as a, as a way of encouraging people when they're suffering and assuring them that nothing can separate them from God's love, again, rooted in eternity. To reject these truths and to modify them, or to change them, or to disdain them. It's not a tragedy because it's an intellectual difference of opinion. It's, it's a tragedy because it's like running onto a battlefield with a quiver that is absent of <laughs> You're going into the world to, to fight a spiritual War and you are leaving behind one of the greatest weapons that God has given to you. It's like having a, an anchor that's supposed to be an, an anchor for the soul, but that it's lost all of its weight and it's become nothing more than a flotation device. So whenever the the winds of the world and the pressures and the sufferings of the world come upon you, you'll just be blown away. Because you're not anchored in those truths that are revealed to us to secure us firmly in the eternity of God. Time and time again throughout Scripture when the Bible, through the prophets and through the apostles, and it's addressing a people who are in the midst of some kind of affliction. It is some truth that is closely connected to the absolute sovereignty of God over all things that is placed before the people of God to comfort and to encourage them to continue trusting in the Lord. And we find today another example of this very thing in the text that is before us this morning. In verses 6 to 8 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we're picking up in the middle of a passage where Peter is teaching the people of God about how God is shaping and forming them into a holy people. 
He's building them, as we saw, into a, a spiritual house. He's building them into a holy priesthood. They are, in other words, a, a people who are, in the eyes of God, of significant worth. They are vital parts. They are vital stones of this new building that He is, that he is creating. They are of worth, most especially because they have been united to the cornerstone of Christ Himself who is described as the One who is chosen and precious. If you're united to Him, you likewise are chosen and precious. Peter is comparing them to Christ here. Certainly not in the sense that they share His divine attributes and not, of course, in the sense that they are sinless or perfect or in any sense like that, but in the sense that just as Christ was rejected by men and chosen by God, they likewise are a people who are rejected by men and chosen by God. And if you remember from last week, we saw that this is an especially relevant point for this people to know because they are presently experiencing this rejection and this ostracism from their surrounding culture. They need to be reminded that despite the world's opinion of them, they are God's people. They are beloved by God. They need to be reminded that their faith in Christ and their devotion to Him, even though it may be bringing them present afflictions in the world, comes with the great promise of honor before God. They need to be reminded that, that they ought not to be ashamed of their faith. That even as the world is indeed shaming them and ridiculing them. It is, it is not something that they should be ashamed of. And that everything that is happening and everything that has happened and that everything will happen to them is happening according to the sovereign will of God. As we come to verses 6-8, to eight, this is one of the things that we find Peter doing as he continues his instruction. He's He's grounding what happened to Christ when He was rejected by men and exalted before God. He's grounding what happened to Christ in the sovereignty of God. He grounds the confidence and the hope that believers should continue to have in the midst of this world also in the sovereignty of God. And He, he even grounds the unbelief those who are rejecting Christ. Even this is happening according to the sovereignty of God. I want you to notice with me first how Peter grounds the rejection of Christ in the sovereignty of God. In verse 6, Peter says, if you look with me there, he says, for it stands in Scripture stands in Scripture. He's about to give scriptural proof for the argument that he's just made in verses 4 and 5, and particularly verse 4, what he says of Jesus being the living stone rejected by men and chosen and precious before God. But before he does, he introduces his proof by saying, for it stands in Scripture. I think, alone is worth pondering for a moment. Peter does not mean by this that Scripture is merely trustworthy, though that is the case, though that is certainly meant by this. Neither does he mean here simply that Scripture accurately predicted what would come to pass in the future, though that is also true and implied here. When he says it stands in Scripture before 
introducing these quotations, he is implying that events have occurred in the world precisely because God said they would. That these things took place because God determined them to take place. In other words, Scripture as the Word of God is not simply God predicting the future. It is God determining the future. It is God decreeing the future. God does not simply gaze into the future and learn about what is going to happen or what possibilities there may be and then shares these possibilities with His prophets so that they can then communicate this knowledge to others. No, He speaks in Scripture of things to come because He has decreed them to come. He has determined them. One of the things in particular that He had sovereignly decreed to come was a king in Zion. A king in the city of David. But a king who, like David in the days when Absalom betrayed his own father and raised up an army in Israel against him, a king who would be rejected. This is what Peter is referencing when he quotes this string of texts from Isaiah in Psalm 118. All of these texts here speak of a stone. And all of these texts are speaking either of the King of Israel, who is the Christ, the anointed King of Israel, or the Lord. The first one from Isaiah 28, verse 16, comes in the context of God judging Israel. Because in their stubbornness, they were trusting in their idols to save them from their enemies rather than trusting in God. And in the midst of God promising that judgment would fall on the nation of Israel because of this idolatry, He speaks for a moment to the remnant of true believers who are in Israel and He gives them a promise of hope saying to them, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And the stone here is, of course, a metaphor for this King who is going to be established. I should remind you of of Psalm 2, where the nations are rebelling and, and casting off what they perceive to be the chains of God and are saying, in essence, that they're, they're not going to follow Him. And the Lord is sitting in the heavens and He's laughing and He's mocking them because He says, I have established My King in Zion. That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. That's what the Lord, through Isaiah, is saying to this remnant of believers in Isaiah 28. God is going to establish a king who will rule from Zion. In fact, the early Jewish Targum, which were in essence these Aramaic translations of the Old Testament that would have been read very frequently in the synagogues, the, the Jewish synagogues in the first century. If you if you read the Targums on this very text, they translate it as, Behold, I am appointing in Zion a king, a mighty king. And the righteous who believe in these things, when the distress comes, will not be shaken. They are going ahead and giving the interpretation of who the stone is. It's the Christ. The second text that's quoted comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. And though it isn't explicitly stated that this was a psalm of David, it was, as I said earlier, likely written by him, having some messianic overtones to it. Because it speaks of a figure 
a particular, a single figure who is a leader in Israel, who is a royal kingly figure against whom all of the nations were coming and by whom the nations would be defeated. But throughout the psalm, this king is surrounded by his enemies. His life is under threat. But he's confidently trusting that the Lord will deliver him from death. He's confident that the Lord is his strength and that he will be able to enter through the gates of the city of God in triumph over his enemies. And then the psalmist speaks in the third person of this triumphant king. And he says of him, the stone that the builders rejected. This king who was surrounded by his enemies and yet who cuts off of his cuts off his enemies in the strength of the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most vital, important stone of any building's foundation when it was being constructed. All other stones were constructed around it. It is the central stone. And the psalmist is saying that God has taken a stone that men had rejected, that the enemies of the king had rejected and has exalted that stone to be the cornerstone. The most important one. And then thirdly, Peter quotes another passage from Isaiah verse 14 that uses again this metaphor of a stone. Only here, the stone is explicitly identified as the Lord Himself. In the midst of the people of Judah being terrified at the prospects of their political end at the hands of the Assyrians, a prospect that God in His mercy told them would not happen. The Assyrians will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah will be spared. The Assyrians will not destroy you. He promised them that this would not happen. But everyone is panicking. Everyone is fearful about what's going to happen in the future. And in the midst of all of this going on, the Lord tells Isaiah not to be afraid of all of the things that all of the people are afraid of. Do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. That you don't fear what all of these unbelievers fear. Which is again a a great word for us even in this day. The, The level of panic and fear that so many live in today over a variety of issues. Whether that be politics or whether that be sickness. Whatever the case may be. We are not to be afraid of the things that so many are fearful of. He's he's telling Isaiah, you do not be afraid of these things. He says, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. And let Him be your dread. And listen, He will become a sanctuary. He Himself will become a place that you can can go to and worship. He will be a place of refuge and joy and peace. He will become a sanctuary that is the Lord and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Peter has all of these texts in his mind. Texts which speak of Israel's messianic king as the victorious rock who was rejected by men. Texts which speak of the rock being the Lord Himself who would cause all of Israel to stumble over Him. And he brings these texts together to show that the rejection of, his, of, of Christ 
and, and his exaltation before God, that none of this happened by chance. This was no fluke. This was the sovereign plan of God. This was what Scripture declared. This was how God determined the work of Christ in salvation to unfold. Indeed, this is the same Peter who even on the day of Pentecost preached to the Jews in Jerusalem saying to them that this Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter was a big believer that God was sovereign over the death and resurrection of Christ and indeed sovereign over all matters of the Son. You, you can imagine for a moment how many moving pieces there are for these events to happen. For Christ to be betrayed, turned over into the hands of men, turned over by the Jews, by the Gentiles, and crucified. How many people are involved in this? How many hearts, how many wills are involved? And God is sovereign over all of it. Friends, if the worst event to have ever occurred in human history that is the unjust murder of the Son of God at the hands of wicked men. If this act took place according to the sovereign will of God, and if this act, as horrible and as evil as it was, was the very act that God decreed to be the means through which sinners would be reconciled to Himself, if the most horrific act you could think of was used of God to achieve His good and gracious purposes in salvation, do you believe that any of the sufferings that you have faced or that you will ever face are also not without purpose? Does God cease be sovereign when it comes to your own affliction? Is it hard for you to believe that your own misfortunes and your own afflictions, afflictions that are no doubt real, afflictions that are perhaps even painful, but which are, if we're being honest, nothing in comparison to what Christ Himself endured on the cross? Is it hard for you to believe that God is sovereignly carrying out His good purposes through them? If that is a difficulty for you, it is not because you haven't properly worked out the philosophy of it all. It is because at least in this moment or in this moment of trial, you do not believe that God is actually fully sovereign. You struggle to believe that very truth. Perhaps even reject it. And if He's not fully sovereign, then the evil that occurs in this world really has little to no explanation. It just happens without meaning, without purpose. If God is not in control, whatever afflictions come are as random as one could imagine. And it would rightfully leave you in a state of despair. Well, what can an unsovereign God do about it? 
if that were actually the case, if it were actually the case that God is not sovereign, even over the worst events in the world, the whole point of Peter's argument here would really make no sense. It would make no sense for him to say back in chapter 1 that the various trials that are grieving them, that are grieving these churches, these believers are being used to test and refine their faith which will result in praise and glory and honor. It would make no sense for him to say that. God's not in control. These things are just happening. It would make no sense for him to liken them to Christ as living stones rejected by men but chosen and precious by God. It would make no sense to assert the sovereignty of God over them. The most he could say is that their trials are just random acts of sinful men and God's not involved, which of course would do nothing to strengthen their faith in God. Strengthen your faith. Here, he is giving assurance to these Christians that their rejection is happening to them because it is a rejection that happened to Christ which itself happened in accordance with Scripture and the sovereign will of God. The encouragement that we are to receive from this very truth is that God will not let anything come upon us that He does not intend for the good of His people. It is this very truth, this clinging to the sovereignty of God in the midst of great suffering that is the only thing that could ever allow us to actually carry out what the Apostle Paul commands us to do in Romans chapter 5 when he says that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. How do you rejoice in suffering? If God is not in control. How if you are like the early church who faces persecution directly for the Gospel of Christ, how do you go away rejoicing that God has counted us worthy to suffer for the name if He's not in control? He can't. Which is why it is so important look at these truths and to to stiff arm them. To hear what the Word is saying and to allow it to perhaps even reshape your mind. Reshape your heart and affections and orient them towards this reality that God is sovereign. And that all things that happen in my life happen in accordance with His will. And that even the worst things that come, though I may not know the particular the particularities of why they are happening, I can rest in full assurance that God is using this for my own good. To make me more like Christ to chisel me out into a living stone that fits perfectly in the house of God. Now, I've spent some time explaining how Peter grounds both the rejection of Christ and believers in the sovereignty of God. But I want to say a word also briefly about how he grounds the unbelief of unrepentant sinners in the sovereignty of God as well. And here I'm speaking of those, of course, who will never believe. Not an identifiable group by any means. It's not as if you can go outside and go downtown and point the finger and say, oh, that that person will never believe. You don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. But this is a reality. There are people, many people, who will hear the same gospel that you have heard and will never believe. 
this too, Peter says, is because, ultimately, of the sovereignty of God. This is a point that is stated very explicitly at the end of verse 8, if you look with me there. After quoting the text from Isaiah 8, which says that the Lord Himself will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, and then applying this text to unbelievers in general, in verse 7, Peter says that they stumble because they disobey the Word. That that is, that is their action. That's their desire. They disobey the Word. They have, they have no desire to submit themselves to God. And they're accountable for that. But the text goes on. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Now that in particular, destined, is in many Christians' vocabulary. Especially in the American Christian landscape. We believe in freedom and democracy and self-determination. And this whole cultural milieu often gets thrown into our theology as well. And so the idea that something could be destined, the idea that God could be sovereign even over the will of man, it, this for many people is just unfathomable. There's this impulse to explain this away, to, to make it say or mean something that eventually means just the exact opposite of what it actually says. The word destined here is as clear and as forceful as it appears to be. It comes with the same sovereign determination as it implies. In fact, it's the very same word that's translated in verse 6 as laying. I am laying a stone in Zion. And it means here to appoint and to fix something in place. Just as God sovereignly determined that Christ would be His precious stone fixed in Zion, so also, He's saying, those who stumble over Him in their disobedience are appointed to do so. When Judas, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he was guilty. He was responsible. He is fully culpable for his wicked actions. It was his heart's desire to betray the Lord for a tiny bag of money. He sold his soul willingly for that. But what he did happened, we're told, so that Scripture might be fulfilled. And because of this, He is called the Son of Destruction. The One who was appointed for this very end. Or when the Jews had Jesus crucified, they likewise were guilty and accountable for their wicked deeds. Peter, as he's preaching to them, holds them accountable for the, the wicked intentions of their heart, but yet that did not deter Peter from confidently proclaiming that this all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And likewise, Peter says here that those who stumble over Christ, those who disobey the Word, and of course remain in that disobedience, because of course we all at one time disobeyed the Word, they do so as they were destined to do. God is sovereign even over the unbelief of men. Which is not to say that He is making men into something that they wish that they weren't. It's not as if men are jumping at the bit to obey God and to trust God in Him, and the Lord is simply preventing them from doing so. Man in his fallen state is in a state of natural rebellion. His greatest desire and the direction that his will is bent in is always against God. 
he does not have any freedom. He is not a, a man with a free will. He is a man with a, a will bound by his sin and his love for it. When God destines a man to judgment, he determines in his sovereignty to leave that man in his own sinful inclinations. In other words, he determines to give him over completely to his heart's desires so that for his entire life he will indeed carry out all of his wicked inclinations. And that man will carry out those evil intentions and convinced in his own mind that he is his own God and is accountable to no one. But even in this, even in his rebellion, he is both accountable to God and at the same time carrying out the will of God. Again, you could think of Judas or you could think of the Jews and their actions of betraying and killing Jesus, believing that they're somehow thwarting the Messiah here, or in their view, a false Messiah, and at the same time carrying out the will of God. You can think back even to the Old Testament in the days of, of the nation of Israel when the Assyrians were coming against them. There's a chapter in Isaiah 10 that speaks very vividly and clearly about the wicked intentions of the king of Assyria. That what is in his heart is nothing but pride and arrogance and bloodshed, and it is his desire simply to conquer nations, not a few. He believes that he is his own God. He believes that there's no one who can stop him. And yet God clearly says of him that he is nothing more than the rod of God's own anger and an axe that he is wielding. God is using the wicked intentions of the king of Assyria to accomplish his own ends in bringing discipline to the people of Judah. Right? Even the, the evil of man, God is in control of. The relevant point in recognizing the sovereignty of God even over the unbelief of men and the reason why Peter asserts it in this text as he does is again to assure the people of God that the afflictions they're enduring do not fall outside of the sovereignty of God. When these wicked men are persecuting you, when you are being ostracized from society. This is not something that God has lost control over. What they're enduring by way of persecution and the evil of man, that what they are enduring is something that is in the will of God to accomplish God's will in their own lives. They are achieving God's ends of conforming His people into the image of Christ. Friends, we may not be, again, given exact insight into the, the things that God is doing when we are suffering. You can, you can think, for example, of a man like Job who had no clue of the intentions of the Lord and the various afflictions he suffered. We knew, as, as we're readers of the book of Job, we know the divine insight of what's taking place. Job did not. We are never guaranteed a precise understanding of what this particular affliction is doing. But the reason the sovereignty of God is so important is because it teaches us how to trust in God in and through all things. It teaches us, again, to be able to say that in the midst of tribulation or of distress, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of danger or death, we are confident that none of these things will ever separate us from the love of God. He is in full control, carrying out His perfect will in our lives. So friends, shy away 
and they caved, embraced it. Look at what the text is saying and embrace them in all of their fullness and they will indeed be an anchor for you when the storms begin to blow heavily. Amen. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, all throughout your word, you teach us how you are carrying out your will on the earth. That even despite the fall, even despite the entrance of sin into the world, even despite the rebellious nature of man, there is nothing that can thwart your purposes and your plans. And this gives us great confidence and hope, especially for the promises that we still await to be fulfilled. That day to come when Christ comes in the fullness of His kingdom and establishes perfect justice in the world. Lord, we can have confidence that this promise will indeed come to fruition because You are a God who is sovereign over all things. And so I pray, Lord, that this would indeed be a truth that strengthens us and holds us fast to trust in You even more. And I pray this in Jesus' name.